Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Thank you for joining us. It is We Are Not Cattle Radio. I'm your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live for the next two hours if you're listening in on Blog Talk Radio. If you're listening to the rebroadcast, check me out live. You can actually call in and be a part of the show. And I run the podcast every Tuesday and Thursday from 9 until 11. If you're looking for updates on any show changes, you can find me on Twitter at We Are Not Cattle, the number one, or you can go to my website, WeAreNotCattle.net, or you can find me on Facebook under the We Are Not Cattle banner as well. So thanks for joining me. Although I got all my plugs out of the way at the beginning, I wanted to make sure I got that so that if you do find what I talk about intriguing, then uh, you'll subscribe, you'll listen, and you'll share, you'll share the broadcast and podcast with people that you know and like, and what I wanted to do was just basically strike up conversations, and I typically venture into topics <clears throat> that I know a little bit about, but more importantly, that are intriguing to me, and most like-minded people will find them intriguing as well. So today's topic for the show, for the podcast, I'm going to have some uh, some news and, and just some quick articles briefly to catch um, to catch some people up. If you um, if you are not a liberty minded person, then this might not be the show for you. But what we, we talk about here is free markets, um, free thinking, and putting government back on a short leash, which is what our founding documents say. If you're from the United States, and if you don't agree with those founding documents, then you are not a per se American. You are something else. So that being said. And I also um, got a, an interview tomorrow with Adam Kokesh, so I don't know if I'm going to air that on the Thursday night show or if I'm just going to air it as something um, different altogether. I haven't figured that out yet. So, But I do have from for, I think, half an hour, so that should be a lot of fun. He actually organized an armed march on Washington. For those of you that don't know, Adam Kokesh was... Well, if you listen to this podcast, you know because you've heard me interview him a couple times, but um, you know that he was organizing an armed march onto Washington, um, not on Washington, D.C., in Washington, D.C., the D.C. area. And he was participating, not participating as far as actively participating, but he was speaking, emceeing at a a, uh, marijuana protest. It was just basically a gathering of people doing a peaceful protest, stating that they don't agree with cannabis being a class one narcotic drug, as well as the drug war itself being a complete and utter fraud. So he was just there doing his uh, what he believes is his civic duty and is to all of us. If you believe that there is a law that is unjust, then you should go. You have the right to petition the government. You have the right to protest. It's your First Amendment right. So he goes to the event, 
and he's speaking, and after he gets done speaking, he is he is grabbed by the police, um, federalized police, and then he's taken away and left in in jail for what he thought was was interesting listening, and what he thought could have been up to twenty years, but he really wasn't. Um, he wasn't planning on getting out anytime soon. He got out in less than a month. I can't remember exact days. So, but uh, yeah, so I got him on the show for tomorrow. Um, it should be an a, a, an interesting interview to say the least. It's a very interesting guy, fun to talk to. Um, we're ideologically pretty similar, um, yet different at the same time because there has got to be a transition period, which I want to ask him about tomorrow. Being a volunteerist. How do we go about the transition, period? But um, anyway, that's a, a side note. Thanks for joining me on the show tonight. Just a couple of articles that I wanted to I wanted to go over, and this one is near and dear to my heart. So for all of you that don't know, I am, um, I am one of those, I guess, theorists that believes that the federal government should have some type of hand in restoration if need be after a natural disaster but i don't think that they should have standby bureaucrats waiting to mismanage our tax paying money i think that they should just be a hand holding um agency you know much like the federal government was supposed to be just regulate interstate trade and commerce I think that we should have an agency that doesn't come in and, and take over and, and bully people like FEMA, but more so along the lines of helping coordinate and not running the show just being the um, the proverbial referee in the background. So I guess that um, – you know, I guess this would be me. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. And see, my conspiracy theory is – that having a large federal government is a humongous detriment to the society, not only financially, but also from just a just a creepiness standpoint. I mean, name me one huge government throughout history that did a lot of good. I guess you could say Rome, but as Rome kind of got bigger and bigger, the model of the city-state, which is what that republic was set up as, um, got really out of whack. I mean, got really, really out of whack and decadent, just just basically very much a parallel to what we see here in the United States is that you get tremendous wealth, but you also get a society that becomes very decadent. But the reason I bring this up is because there is an article that came out on the 22nd, and this is by the Daily Current, and it says that um, Republicans introduce a bill to abolish FEMA. And it says – and it says Republicans in the Senate today introduced a bill to abolish FEMA, the federal agent, the agency of the federal government which coordinates and responds to natural disasters. They don't coordinate and respond. They come in and take over and tell everybody what they're going to do. They don't do any coordinated, and it's more like dictation. And then mismanage money and give checks to people like they did in, you know, in um, Hurricane Katrina that had been dead, or they just had, you know, two and three thousand dollar trailers that just sat around and did nothing. Um, it was a complete mismanagement, you know, boondoggle. But 
Uh, continuing with the article, the proposed legislation would immediately halt the agency's work, lay off its employees, and use the money to save the financial credit for oil and gas production in national parks. Holy cow. You mean we're actually going to turn a a money-destroying machine, FEMA, a sovereignty-destroying machine, a independence-destroying machi- machine like FEMA, we're going to take that into something that's, that's positive? This bill will never go through. There's no way. In a speech on the Senate floor, the bill's sponsor, Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky – oh, there you go. That's why. It's Rand Paul, you know, somebody that actually will um, – We'll try to do the right thing, even if he plays politics. And I know a lot of people don't like the way he plays politics, but um, you know we got to somehow get away from the far right and the far left. Um, and I know that he's a little bit more of a um, of a statist to some people than um, than others, but um, than than the true libertarian. But you know we can't have a bunch of libertarians running the world; it won't work. We'll all just yeah, it will it'll just be a disaster. So it takes all kinds. But anyway, um, in a speech on the bill on the Senate floor, the bill sponsor Rand Paul argued that despite the recent spat of tragic tornadoes in Oklahoma, disaster relief shouldn't be the federal government's business. Duh. And it says in quote, FEMA is just another example of big government run amok. Yeah, no kidding. Sure, it sounds good. And wouldn't also be called so called. Who wouldn't be against so called disaster relief? But we're paying for this program with money borrowed from China and driving our country deeper and deeper into debt. That's the real disaster. Absolutely. Once again, hitting the nail on the head. I suppose people need help in times like these. And if individual states want to step up with relief agencies, that's fine. But why should taxpayers in other states be forced to pay? Because, we're, remember, we're all a collective Ron or Rand Paul. We're all the collective. Remember, the kids don't belong to you anymore. We have to stop thinking of the kids as our kids. We have to start thinking of them as the community kids, like they say on MSNBC, which probably has fewer listeners than my show. Anyway, Kentucky doesn't have earthquakes. Kentucky doesn't have hurricanes. Kentucky doesn't have tornadoes, I don't think. So why are we footing the bill for this stuff? Oh, how dare you, Rand Paul, come out with logic. And it says, Hurricane Paul is the title of the next line. And this is not a very long article, so I'm almost done here. Republicans long have had an interest in disassembling FEMA, an agency that most Americans believe fulfills a necessary role in government. And I don't know where this all this stuff comes from. President's, presidential nominee Mitt Romney famously said he would eliminate the agency before re- reversing himself under public fur, fervor. Excuse me. Republican Representative Ron Paul led a long crusade in Congress to do the same, once claiming – claiming, uh, underlined – that the agency was a system of bureaucratic and central economic planning. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But he can just claim – he claims – Ron Paul claims that the sky is blue, everybody. Don't listen to the crazy old man. Rand Paul, who's Congressman Paul's son – has said in the past that he doesn't believe FEMA is worth paying for with borrowed money. He went on further today, arguing that the time has come for its complete dismantlement. Yet yeah, we're all bankrupt. We're borrowing le- we're borrowing almost forty cents on the dollar, depending on what it is from China. I mean, what do you guys what do you guys want us to do? I mean, we can't keep going on like this anyway. 
It used to be the churches and volunteers that handled natural disasters. Once again, a volunteerist nation would be great. You know, we just have to kind of some way steer our ship back there because that's exactly what that's talking about. Nowadays, we have teams of so-called experts and scientists and professional disaster relief engineers, all funded by the federal government, most of them. It's dangerous to stop spend, spending on your friends and or to stop spending on your friends and neighbors that start depending on the cold, long arm of federal government. I can't think of anything my local pastor and couple with my strong youth men couldn't handle. Can you? Although the first responders and volunteers have been enthusiastical, FEMA has largely been praised for its efforts in Oklahoma so far, with the with the urban search and rescue teams being credited with helping survivors. And then Rand Paul is a blanking idiot, is what Delaware Governor Jack Markle said, whose tiny state sits aside a hurricane zone. The federal government, by pooling resources and exploiting economic economies of scale can do disaster relief much more efficiently than the states can alone. And I won't even go in to say what um I won't even go on to say what the guy says at the end of this article. So it was an op ed piece, but it basically covers the the meat and potatoes of what what I wanted to talk about. And that was and that is the the conditioning in the psyche of the American public. So what's what's really going on here today? Well, what really goes on here in the United States of America is that you have a bunch of different issues that have been kind of swept aside and, oh, we'll deal with that later, or, oh, when the bill comes due, we'll look at that kind of mentality. And now we're staring down the barrel of multiple scandals in the White House. Which doesn't shock me because every administration over the past – let's just be honest. Since I've been in life, there has not been an administration without a scandal. Now, to me personally, does the Obama administration scandal compare to the Bush scandal? No. It's different. It's much creepier. But the Bush scandal stuff was really a lot worse. Let's be honest. I mean, we got a million dead Iraqis over some supposed weapons of mass destruction that we never found, and then the president, the former president, goes on to make jokes about it in speeches. Yeah, I killed over a million people, or we killed over a million people, but that's over there, so that really doesn't matter. So we're we're reaching a precipice with all of these different challenges in our nation that have gone ignored. FEMA has gone ignored. Remember, FEMA was enacted. Under Jimmy Carter's administration is when he began to form um, FEMA, which, you know, to the to the um, to the governor's credit, it does make more sense for the federal government to be in quote unquote control. But what is the one thing that we've learned over and over in history again, and that is government can only do about a third of what the private sector can do. And what I mean by that is that if you gave the government $100, it's going to waste probably 66 of those dollars doing something, paying people exorbitant salaries, um, long vacations, um, lobbying efforts, those types of things. 
Whereas if you gave it to the private sector, if they do a bad job, you just fire them. It's very, it's a very different methodology and thinking. But what I fear has transpired here in this nation is that we are now a nation of feel-gooders. And that is never what this nation has been about. We like to do things in America now that make us feel good. It makes me feel good to go and do a march for breast cancer. I don't know why breast cancer is up so much. Maybe we should be asking that question. Or why all these other cancers are up so much. Or hey, why do I have a toxic toxic substance in my water supply? Why is it actually put in there by my government to meet quote-unquote EPA standards? When there have been Harvard studies and multiple other studies that have come out even recently stating that hydrofluorosilicic acid lowers IQ. Once again, that the second issue is a real issue. The first issue is a feel-good issue. So through our training in the government brainwashing facilities, a.k.a. the classical conditioning centers that we call the public school system, where you are just basically there to learn how to be a servant of authority. And I know that that's a very oversimplification for what the public school system is. Once again, my mother was a public school teacher for 30 years. My wife is a public school teacher. I understand the system and the people in it in and of itself are not typically bad. But the way that the system is structured now, and even more so as we move along with these testings and you know basically teaching to the tests, you're only creating a workforce. You're not creating an enlightened public. You're not creating intellectuals. You're creating regurgitators. So, and one other thing that they would also create is levels of compartmentalization also within the structure of the educational system. Um, I've listened to about half of, I've actually seen two of her lectures, or not lectures, interviews that are over two hours long. Charlotte Iserby that wrote a book about the deliberate dumbing down of America. And she wrote that book back in the 80s, and it's slowly starting to come to fruition about how they've migrated the Soviet model here to the United States. And they're going to continue to do it because, once again, the federal government is over the – has the levers of power over our educational system. Now, why is this stuff important? Well – Obviously, education is important for you to get a job. It's important for you to um, to be able to succeed in life. But what is the role of education per se? And there's a great debate now. Is the role of education is the role of education to educate the people, or is it to churn out workers? Remember, we're six billion plus people on this planet now. So can we have an entire planet of free thinkers? Will you have to have a planet of a working brigade, if you will? Of course. But classically conditioning everyone to be in the working class 
is going to do nothing for the evolution of our species. It's going to do nothing to get us to evolve and enlighten and get to different forms of governance because I think we're starting to slowly see that that government by dictatorship and government itself portraying itself as the as the savior but also the sole arbinger of force is what we're really really struggling with now why do we struggle with these things well you struggle with these things and a lot of it has to do with um, classical conditioning is part of it, and I've got a bunch of classical conditioning clips here. I got some Skinner clips. I've got um, I got all kinds of stuff for you guys. It's gonna be a fun show, and I might have some uh, some friends of mine pop in a little bit later to give their take. But what we run into is um, it's a little bit of normalcy bias. It's a little bit of this is the way that things have always been. And here I got a um I got a um a quick um Wikipedia answer for you um, for the people that want to know what a normalcy bias is. Or it can be also referred to as normalty bias. But a normalcy bias refers to a state of people entering or f- when facing a disaster. It causes people to underestimate both the possibility of the disaster occurring and its possible effects. It is often results in situations where people fail to inadequately prepare for a disaster and on a large scale, failure for governments to include the populace in its disaster preparedness, a.k.a. FEMA. The assumption that it is made the case of the normalcy bias is that since the disaster has never occurred, then it will never occur. It results in the inability of people to cope with a disaster once it does occur. People with a normalcy bias have difficulty reacting to some things that they have not experienced before. People also tend to interpret warnings in the most optimistic way possible, seizing on any ambiguity to infer a less serious situation. And they they give the example... That Nazi genocide of millions of Jews, even though after knowing friends and family that were being taken away against their will, the Jewish community still stayed put and refused to believe that something was quote-unquote going on. Because of the extreme nature of the situation, it was understandable why the most would deny it. And the reason that the normalcy bias is the largest challenge that we face is that over the last 20 years, nothing has grown faster in America save the coffers of the international bankers through the Federal Reserve signing us on to billions of dollars of debt, which they know that we can never pay back. The largest, most expansive industry has been government. And so the normalcy bias will set in 
if if I walk down the street, and I want to ask I want to ask um, Adam about this because he's an anarcho-capitalist. But when you tell people that you don't believe that government is relative, nor is it necessary for us to regulate our lives, that rule of law is necessary, and that we should have rule of law, obviously, but we don't necess- necessarily need government there with black uniforms and vehicles and, and, and fully automatic machine guns and riot gear and, I mean, just and, and in costumes like suits telling us how much they need us. Once you see it in that perspective, once you see it in the perspective that it is all theater, it is all theater to justify the money. And when I say justify the money, if you live in America, you spend about half of your paycheck to pay for government in one way, shape, or form. Not including the purchasing taxes that you pay. Not including any of that stuff. So, when I say that normalcy bias is a large challenge that we face, it is probably the biggest challenge that we face. Because once again, you know, normalcy bias, people with a normalcy bias have a difficulty reacting to something that they have not experienced before. So, people have not really experienced no government. And I'm not talking about no government as being lawlessness, craziness. We've already got that now. We've already got lawless craziness going on around us now, and society hadn't crumbled. And when I say that, I'm saying that if you go down pretty much every amendment <coughs> – let's go through – here, let's do it together. The First Amendment, yep, that was violated by our um, Department of Justice, who is supposedly the the extreme law of the land, so that's out. The Second Amendment, that has been violated time and time again, and that was what Adam Kokesh was protesting in the fact that – you know. The Supreme Court, who is the one that interprets the Constitution, has already has already ruled that it is not illegal for you to open carry a, a shotgun or a rifle inside the District of Criminals. But yet they pass a statute in the District of Criminals making it illegal. So that's a violation of the Second Amendment right there. And we'll skip the Third Amendment. We'll just go to the Fourth Amendment. Have you flown on a plane lately? That's a violation of your Fourth Amendment. You didn't walk up and say you're a terrorist and you have a bomb. You didn't walk up and act shady. You didn't walk up and do anything. They just infer that since you are in their private area, which most of these airports are private guys, and that's why the TSA can operate there, and you can't film them, and all these other stupid edicts that they have, and all these stupid little policies that they have. But if it's a government-sanctioned airport, then absolutely it's a violation of your Fourth Amendment. But that is unwarranted searches and seizures. And a violation of the Fifth Amendment, we just saw it a, a week ago, where you had the the woman in charge of the IRS scandal say, well, I'm going to take the Fifth, but I'm going to give my statement. No, you can't do that. You can't, you can't say that, well, I'm going to tell you what I want to say, and then you don't get to question me. That's a complete violation. So, hey, welcome to La La Land, everybody. If you think everything's okay and everything everything's cookies and rainbows, then just like I said, take your bill of rights out and just go down, and we'll just start just start scratching them off. 
You start scratching them off because that's what it is. And so when you tell people that you, you believe that there should be less government, that's why they freak out is because all they have seen over the last 20 years is government getting bigger and all these things getting fancier. But they really don't know what's going on in the actual world. I'm going to go to this Norm Chomsky clip on education, and it's about five minutes. It's really good because he breaks down exactly what education is, and and there's you know two forms of education. He goes through all that, and then uh, I'm going to try to find because I just this just popped into my head because I'm going to do um, I'm going to talk about how television affects the subconscious, which also affects how you act in public. And then we're going to get into um, marketing and how marketing to your subconscious plays in all this stuff. And people don't believe in subliminal advertising, that stuff. It It's a fraud. I mean, it, it's kind of hit or miss. It's like if somebody tries to hypnotize you on a stage, you have some people that are highly suggestible and some people that aren't. Just because somebody flashes a McDonald's logo in the middle of a commercial or a middle of a show doesn't make you want to go eat McDonald's. So I know it's fun to fantasize about. Are there things that your subconscious picks up? Absolutely. There, your subconscious mind is infinitely smarter than your conscious than your conscious being. But side issue. We'll get into all of that here in a little bit. I'm getting ahead of myself. So here's the Norm Chomsky clip on education, and then I'm going to play a, um, a Ron Paul, uh, the the um, the king of the thought criminals. I'm going to play his last um, his last. Um, Speech, not speech, but his last um, update and um, talking about how we need a free market um, educational system. So here's Norm Chomsky on education. Well, we can ask ourselves what the purpose of an educational system is. And, of course, there are uh, sharp differences on, on this matter. Uh, there's the uh, traditional an interpretation that comes from the Enlightenment, which uh, holds that uh, the highest goal in life is uh, to inquire and create, uh, to uh, uh, search the uh, riches of the past, uh, try to uh, internalize the parts of them that are significant to you, carry that quest for understanding further in your own way. Uh, uh, purpose of education uh, from that point of view is just to help people uh, uh, determine how to learn on their own. Uh, it's you, the learner, who is going to achieve uh, in the course of education. And it's really up to you what you'll, uh, uh, what you'll master, where you'll go, how you'll use it, uh, uh, how you'll go on to uh, 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 produce something new and exciting for yourself, maybe for others. That's one concept of education. Now, the other concept is essentially indoctrination. Uh, people have to, the idea that from childhood, uh, uh, young people have to be uh, uh, placed into a framework in which they'll follow orders, accept uh, existing frameworks, uh, not challenge, and so on. And this is often quite explicit. 
And so, for example, after the uh, in the uh, after the uh, activism of the 1960s, uh, there was great concern across uh, much of the uh, educated spectrum uh, that uh, uh, young people were just getting too free and independent. Uh, that the country was becoming too democratic and so on. And in fact, there's an important study on uh, what's called the crisis of democracy, too much democracy, uh, uh, arguing that uh, uh, there are, uh, claiming that there are certain institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young, that's their phrase, and they're not doing their job properly. That's uh, schools, universities, churches. We have to change them so that they carry out the job of indoctrination and control more effectively. That's actually coming from the liberal internationalist uh, uh, end of the spectrum of the, of the uh, spectrum of educated opinion. And in fact, since that time, there have been many measures taken to try to uh, turn uh, the educational system towards uh, more control, more indoctrination, uh, uh, more vocational training, uh, 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 imposing a debt which traps students, young people, into a life of conformity and so on. That's uh, the exact opposite of the uh, of what I referred to as the tradition that comes out of the Enlightenment. And there's a constant struggle between those uh, in the colleges, in the schools. Uh, in the schools, do you uh, uh, do you uh, train for passing tests, or do you train for uh, a creative uh, inquiry, uh, pursuing uh, interests that are aroused by material that's presented that you want to pursue either on your own or in cooperation with others. And this goes all the way through uh, uh, up to uh, you know, graduate school and research. Just two different ways of looking at the world. When you, when you get to, a, say, a research institution like the one we're now in, at the graduate level, it, uh, it essentially follows the uh, Enlightenment tradition. In fact, science and, uh, couldn't progress unless it was uh, based on uh, inculcation of the uh, urge to challenge, uh, to uh, uh, question uh, the doctrine, question authority, uh, search for alternatives, uh, uh, use your imagination, uh, act freely under your own impulses. Cooperative work with others is constant, as you can see just by walking down the halls. Uh, that's, in my view, what uh, an educational system should be like down to kindergarten. Uh, but uh, there's uh, certainly are uh, powerful structures in the society which would prefer people to be indoctrinated, conform, not ask too many questions, be obedient, uh, fulfill the uh, roles that are assigned to you and don't try to shake systems of power and authority. Uh, those are choices we have to make either as uh, people that wherever we stand in the educational system as students, as teachers, as people on the outside trying to help shape it in the directions in which we think it ought to go. So. That being said, you do run into the conundrum of how do we teach people? 
Now, obviously, the first method of teaching is very easy. That's the one where you just kind of, I guess that that's what my awakening, quote-unquote awakening was, is that um, I wasn't interested in, I wasn't interested in what they were teaching me in in high school. And I know that sounds stupid, but, or that actually sounds pretty, you know, Spot on with most kids. It's like, oh, who's interested in this? Who's interested in... Well, I was interested in math and science, but I, I really saw, you know, no real need for, you know, geography and stuff like that. Until, you know, later on in life, I found a way to to incorporate it into, into my worldview. And so I think that what we struggle with is getting people to assert their individuality rather than be a part of the collective because that is what is pushed with um with groupthink and and working as a group it is pushing collective um thought now it's also com- pushing how you can operate well with others and and things of that nature and and how you can interact with a group and problem solve and stuff like that but you do run into situations where you kind of struggle to find somebody that would be a very a very intellectual voice if they're in a group setting that's dominated by an an alpha personality then the alpha personality will typically win out because the alpha will just keep coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back and and somebody in the group might have a beta personality and be very, you know, have have a very good solution to the challenge, but doesn't want to speak up due to societal pressures, or um, or just the the group collective pressure, if that makes any sense. And where I'm going with this is that we run into a situation now where Americans spend almost an entire work week watching television. I've got the numbers right here. I found the article I was looking for. And almost an entire work week watching television. And television, much like the way that kids are being trained now in school, is not interactive. Kids are not being taught to be interactive. They're taught to to pass a test. They're not taught to problem solve. They are taught to regurgitate. Now, I say that ad nauseum because you have to understand what the ramifications will be on our society. And we're already starting to see it as we see our scores lower and dropping dramatically. And our society slowly, slowly disconnecting from reality. Because that's what it is. It's a, it's a complete break with what's really going on and then living vicariously through television and small pockets of your society or your little group. You believe that everything is okay. You believe that everything is fine because your normalcy bias says that there's nothing happening inside of my group that's bad. I don't see anything bad on the television so therefore, everything needs to be fine because I can't see anything is wrong. But once you see how you're inserted into that 
type of thinking and behavior. I believe that that's what the the wake up is, is that you found out that you've been manipulated since you were a child. Not through your parents and not through anything else. But it was basically suggestive reinforcement. And it was... It's... What do they call it? The schedule of reinforcement. Now let me explain this to you. And this is kind of a zany theory, but it it does hold up. When you're a child... Think back to when you were about 12 years old. Maybe, uh, yeah, 12 years old is fine because you're starting to figure out how to interact with adults, but you're still kind of a kid, but, you know, you just kind of want to do your own thing and be left alone and trying to figure out what all this puberty stuff's about. So you go through this little, what I call the, the scheduled reinforcement, which is a psychological term, but the reason that I'm going to use it is because it reinforces your perception of reality or gives you that warm and fuzzy feeling. Now, for me, the warm and fuzzy feeling was right after I got home, and I do remember this vividly. I had There was two routes that my bus could take going home. One route, I would be the first person to be dropped off, and... The next route, I would be the last person to get dropped off. Now, and when I was 12 years old, it was very crucial for me to be dropped off first because I had a cartoon that I used to run in and watch before I would get anything done and before the news came on and also before my mom got home from school as well. So I would get home, watch the show, and then when she got home, I would start doing my chores. So that was my schedule of reinforcement. And the pain that I experienced by not being the first one off the bus was at that point, it was devastating. But when I got into my reality, when I got into my all the stars aligned kind of deal and I got to get home first and watch my show, my schedule of reinforcement was fulfilled. Everything was right in my own little universe. So I believe that the human instinct or the human psyche likes schedules of reinforcement and that's been proven over and over again but i think now we are instead of using our schedules of reinforcement being food water sleep those types of things where you feel good after you eat you know you feel good after you sleep exercise those types of things now we're supplementing those with virtual stimuli and virtual Um, schedules of reinforcement. And what I mean by that is now kids probably don't go home and run off the bus and watch Thundercats like I did. They probably run home, turn on the Xbox, or they run home and get on the internet. So you're running a really slippery slope now with all these different things that can reinforce bad behavior And when I say bad behavior, I don't mean it's like shame on you bad. It's just not good for your cognitive ability. And I've got articles here supporting this. But here is what we need to get to. And then I'm going to get to the Ron Paul clip right at the – I'll actually get to that here after this little little article because it will kind of tie in um, to what I'm saying. 
And it's this is from uh, the New York Daily News. It says Americans spend 35 hours a week watching television according to the Nielsen numbers, which Nielsen has been caught fabricating before, but let's take it with a grain of salt here. People watch more television as they get older, according to the Nielsen statistics. Yeah, they just don't want to be involved in society anymore. They're they're just tired. They don't want to. They just want to be entertained. They just want to sit there and let you know let the information come to them, never caring if the information is accurate or not. They're just in a lower brainwave state, so they're pretty relaxed. And I've got the numbers to support that here in a minute. It says the average American over the age of two spends more than 34 hours a week watching live television. This is live television. And it says in New Nielsen report, there's another three to six hours watching tape programming. So six hours, that will be a 40-hour work week. You put in an entire job sitting on your couch. Meanwhile, in reality, we have 25,000 people in the world die of starvation every day. But you're watching television. Isn't that fun? For a country where the phrase I I really don't watch that much television is is so common it could also be engraved on our dollar bill, that's a lot of screen time. The survey taken during the first quarter of 2012 says that the average weekly viewing time hasn't changed much over the last four years. The biggest changes of our time watching shows from DVR has doubled, and more of us, 36 million more or less, are watching some videos on smartphones. Which I, I do that all the time, but it's usually you know crazy stuff that's on Twitter. Nielsen also says gaming consoles are bigger uh, a bigger um, are becoming a bigger video medium uh, through the numbers, though the numbers remain small. As in the last years, we watch more TV as we get older. Children two to eleven watch an average of twenty four hours of television a week. Who in the heck lets her? two-year-old watch 24 hours a week or uh, three and a half hours a day of television. Oh, man. I I spent the weekend with my friends that have three kids, and they didn't let them watch any television. They let them play video games, but they had limitations on the video games, and, I mean, it's just how you do it. It's not rocket science. Just don't give in to your kids so much. After it after it rises steadily until people are over age of 45 or until people over the age of 65 48 hours a week or nearly 7 hours a day watching television the latest fact proves that at least someone nielsen still counts older viewers even though the broadcast networks would rather not older viewers made harry's law the most popular scripted show on nbc last year but the network still canceled it because it wanted to draw in younger eyeballs. Yeah, they want to get more people in there to brainwash. Meanwhile, the average person spends four le- less than five hours a week trolling the internet on a computer, though the numbers rise from more than seven hours for people from 35 to 49. So that means you're getting a ton of screen time. And what does that mean to you? Well, I'll get to that here in a second. I do want to play this Ron Paul clip because I'm going to have a hard break at um, in about another ten minutes. So here is the um, here is the Ron Paul clip on why we need a free market educational system. And I want to make sure I get the volume right. So bear with me. Hello, this is Ron Paul with your weekly update for Monday, May 27th. Common Core nationalizes and dumbs down public school curriculum. 
In addition to shredding civil liberties, launching a utopian global war for democracy, and going on a spending spree that would make LBJ blush, the so-called conservative Bush administration dramatically increased federal control over education via the No Child Left Behind Act. During my time in Congress, I heard nothing but complaints about this law from teachers, administrators, and most importantly, students and parents. Most of the complaints concerned No Child Left Behind's testing requirements, which encouraged educators to teach the test. Sadly, but not surprisingly, instead of improving education by repealing No Child Left Behind's testing and other mandates, the Obama administration is increasing national control over schools via the Common Core Initiative. Common Core is a new curriculum developed by a panel of so-called education experts. The administration is trying to turn Common Core into a national curriculum by offering states increased federal education funding if they impose Common Core's curriculum on their public schools. This is yet another example of the government using money stolen from the people to bribe states into obeying federal dictates. Critics of Common Core say it dumbs down education by replacing traditional English literature with informational text. So students will read such inspiring materials as studies by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, the EPA's recommended levels of installation, and invasive plant inventory by California's Invasive Plant Council. It is doubtful that reading federal reports will teach students the habits of critical thinking and skepticism of government that the founders considered essential to maintaining a free republic. Like Obamacare, Common Core, now dubbed Obamacore by some, has sparked a backlash in the states, leading some to propose legislation forbidding state participation in the scheme. I hope these efforts lead to states not just opting out of Common Core, but opt out of No Child Left Behind and all the other federal education programs as well. Parents can also effectively opt out of programs like Common Core by seeking alternatives to government education. It is no coincidence that as federal control over education increases, the quality of public education has declined and more parents have chosen to homeschool. To support these parents, I have established my own homeschool curriculum. Unlike Common Core, we do not dumb down any of our offerings. Instead, the goal is to provide students with a rigorous education in history, math, English, foreign languages, and other core subjects necessary to a well-rounded education. Unlike the top-down model of nationalized education, the homeschool curriculum is designed to encourage maximum input from parents and students. While the curriculum will reflect my belief and interest in Austrian economics, libertarian political theory, and the history of the struggle against state power, the curriculum is being carefully designed to not show bias toward any one religion. I hope all parents of any faith or no religious beliefs at all will feel comfortable using this curriculum. I believe it is important for those of us concerned with education and liberty to fight our battles locally. We must oppose further encroachment on the autonomy of local public schools and work to roll back existing interference while encouraging and supporting the growth of homeschooling and other alternative education movements. 
The key to restoring quality education is to replace the bureaucratic control of education with a free market in education. Parents should have the freedom to select the type of education that best suits their child's unique needs. Thanks for calling this update. A new update is placed on this. So there's Ron Paul talking about the difference between Common Core and developing a society of critical thinkers, which, like I debated myself in the in the first you know first fifteen minutes, can you have an entire population of libertarians? Eh, it would work, but it would be very difficult because you need you need opposing views on certain things and. And there, as the more I research and the and the older I get, and the more that I learn, I, I know that there is not one, there is not one philosophy that is the answer. It'll be a kind of um, uh, hodgepodge, I guess, of just different ideologies coming together, and but you know, discussing these ideologies and not just enforcing it on the public via some committee. Like we're doing with Common Core, it's a very, very dangerous thing to do to leave. Especially having the Department of Education in general is dangerous, but now having the the students basically become glorified test takers, and the better you can understand and the better that you can regurgitate, you know, makes you a better human being. Doesn't necessarily sit well with me um, because it, it's not going to do anything for us societally and as a species. It's just going to make us a bunch of people going around looking for you know questions to answer and not developing your own questions and not once again you know questioning why government does anything or why we need this or why we need that. So you you run into the ultimate conundrum. Which is how do we get over this? How do we how do we not only stay true to the beliefs and the and what we've seen has been proven to produce great thinkers in the Enlightenment? And how do we balance that with the need for a workforce? Well, we did a really great job up until the federal government got involved. Because we were one of the most educated nations on the planet. And now we're – I think we're not even in the top 20. So where have we fallen short? Well, we keep thinking that government is going to save us. And this is not going to be a preaching lesson. It's just one of those things that I always come back to. Government is not there to save you. It is not there to protect you. It is not there for anything. You ask any cop. Their job is not to protect you. That is not their job. The government's job is not to protect you. It is not to educate you. It is not to do any of those things. It is to create servants for the government. Yes, and that is a very statist thing to say, but it is the fact. Because if you look at our society now, as opposed to our society 20 years ago, Subtract all the all the money and the financial boom and stuff like that. We're in a really really challenging position, 
And that's why I can't understand where people say that, you know, I'm bored. I'm bored. I'm like, good God, do you not look around and see what's going on around you? We're almost on the verge of war. We got three different scandals, or excuse me, four, including Fast and Furious, going on in the White House. We've got um, we've got the the governments around the world coming out trying to censor the internet, demanding that we tax the internet. Then we have other government officials, you know, servants or whatever, coming out in in, in the UK saying that terrorists are everywhere and we got to be on the lookout and spy on your neighbor. I mean, we are approaching, vastly approaching an Orwellian police state control grid. And if you're bored, you're not paying attention. I am so sorry. So that's that's my hard break for right now, and I'm gonna um, I'm gonna play a, um, a quick clip of about um, yeah. So we're just gonna play. I'm just looking for a, a small clip to play so I can take a break here for a second. Oh, here's a good one. This is from the this is from um, the network. So everybody enjoy. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. and There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do, and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe, and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God, my life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! (laughs) All right. That's still one of my favorite clips. That and the part where he's in the boardroom and they're talking about the, um, the corporations running the world. That's really, really insightful stuff. And it's really kind of funny that I was talking about classical conditioning and then I play that clip where he tells you to get up out of your seat and tell you you're mad as hell. And that's a, um, that is a form of uh, conditioning. But um, anyway, hey, if you're government schooled, you probably got up and, and started doing what he says because that should be perceived authority since it's coming through a um, – so it's coming through a, um, a speaker. So – and he sounds very authoritative. If he was – if he actually marched out in a, in a black uniform with a, with a gigantic metal shield on it and had stripes on the side, I guarantee you everybody in America would go to their window and salute if they saw the video of that. Because they would be so freaked out or so infatuated with the position of authority that they would do whatever they say. Because now I get into the fun stuff, everyone. 
kind of set it up rolling through education, how you learn, those types of things. And now we're going to get into the real meat and potatoes, and I've got one solid hour left to do it. So thanks for listening, everybody. And here is the second issue that we wanted to cover, and that is, is the television conditioning you to be a different person, and how so? Well, let me give you a little background about myself. I've said this before, but if you're new to the show, thanks for listening. Spread the word about the broadcast. Follow me on Twitter. We are not cattle, the number one. Um, Look me up on Facebook. We are not cattle. Or you can find the website, wearenotcattle.net. I've done a very poor job of updating that since I've gotten a new template. But um, by the end of this week, we should be rocking and rolling with all the new uh, uh, interviews I've done, all the videos that I've cut, all the podcasts, all of those things. You should be able to have those up here by the end of the week. So now that I've gotten that housekeeping stuff taken care of, my issue began... When I was in college, now first went to college, um, went to shorter college in in Georgia. And this is just the abbreviated life story of me. I went over there to play golf. Uh, was a pretty decent golfer in high school. Was a pretty decent collegiate golfer, but uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. But I knew I didn't want to go to a small school in the Georgia mountains that was a predominantly Southern Baptist university. Nothing against Southern Baptist people. Everybody there was great. It just didn't fit my personality. So I had an opportunity to move. And since I was big into golf, I had an opportunity to move to South Carolina um, over about 15 minutes away from Myrtle Beach to a place called Coastal Carolina University, which has what's called a PGM program where you study to be a um, a professional, um, a golf professional instructor. So I was going through the program, and through the program, you could have two separate types of majors that you could get. You could get a marketing major, or you could get a management major. Well, I thought marketing was kind of cool. It dealt with colors and stuff like that. So I was like, all right, that sounds like a little fun thing to do. So let me go and try that out. So I started getting into marketing, and I found out Unlike what I experienced in high school, I found that I really, really liked it because I thought it was interesting that you could show people things and get them to either feel, um, desire, or disdain something by not even giving them any physical. You could just show them a visual, and that would create a a feeling. It would create an impulse, and that to me was fascinating. So as I started going through… So as I started going through college and I started learning more and more about marketing, I started taking you know, marketing 101 and just reading the dark prints of the word and then finding out how, um, how advertising is done and, and how it's sold and the reason that things are positioned where they are in grocery stores and the reason lighting is the way it is and the reason music is the way it is. I need to jot those down so I can come back to those. I'm just going to do grocery store analogy. Sorry, guys. So what I did was I met a guy that was um, it was very much my happenstance. We were um, I was working at a place called Johnny Rockets, which is just like a, a little you know hamburger shop. 
probably was waiting tables there, you know, making decent money for a college kid at 22 years old. And I met a buddy of mine that was um, that was running the uh, the snow cone machine. And so we had a trade that if I would get him um, some chili cheese fries, he would get me a free snow cone. So we did that a couple of times, and we started chatting, and then um, and then we started uh, ended up hanging out, and he ended up being in a lot of my classes. Ended up being one of my one of my best friends in college. So when we would go through marketing classes together, we were the marketing nerds that you guys probably couldn't stand. We would try to find every little sign and every little manipulation and what it meant and what they were trying to do and why they choose that color, why they choose this font, all of those things. So I became infatuated with it, absolutely infatuated. We would uh, – I was the worst person to watch television with. I still am probably one of the um, most annoying people to watch television with If if you want me to go through – the the absolute manipulation that is going on every time you see a commercial. Um, so we just had fun. We would just sit there and and you know watch the commercials and say, here's their target audience. Here's what they're trying to do. Here's the product they're trying to push. This is why they chose white in the background. This is why they have an interracial couple. This is why they have a a, a couple with two kids rather than a couple with three kids. And it, it was very very entertaining. That being said. I lost a lot of that when I got out of school. I didn't hang out with my friend as much anymore. Didn't wasn't really fun seeing all these things by yourself. You didn't have anybody to converse with and talk to and brainstorm about. Which is kind of funny cuz he and I both came up with the um with the idea for Audible, which is the the online um audiobook store, but we were going to do it being the the uh, the slackers that we were. We were going to do it with Cliff Notes and then just have it to where you could download it um, online and then burn it to a CD so you could listen to the Cliff Notes on your way to take the test. So once again, trying to figure out a way to scam the system and get ourselves out of work by meanwhile you know, maximizing the time we spent at the bars and what have you. So I got older. I got out of that stuff. And then once I was shifted, had the paradigm shift into looking into propaganda and what I was seeing from not only my um, my news organizations, the quote-unquote news organizations, which are all owned by six super large conglomerates. Once I started seeing that and I started seeing that coupled with products that they were pitching and seeing that coupled with with medical ads, when I started looking at the medical side of things in Western medicine, it really started to kind of click. And that is, the more that people watch television, the more that they formulate opinions, and this is through no fault of your own, by the way. If you're a victim of this, then I'm, I'm here to unlock the conditioning. They're more apt to regurgitate what they've seen on the magic box as facts. And they get a lot of practice at it. We all get a lot of practice at it. You see something that happens on the quote-unquote news, even if it's your local news. And then you go and ask your friend, hey, did you see that news report? Yes, I did. That's crazy, isn't it? Yes, it was. What do you think? I think I think that guy's nuts. Never even occurring to the person that that the way that the that the article or the way that the actual report could be set up and phrased and presented 
could imply could imply the fact that this person was guilty, not guilty, so on. They would, in essence, feed you the information in a way, in a manipulated way, to get you to believe and to think and to feel the desired outcome. Now, I know that that's a big, long banter about watching television, but think about this. Think about how well the media industrial complex did on selling the Americans on the war with Iraq. That's just an easy one. Think about that. Whether you whether you believe in the Iraq war was good or not, you have you have to admit you cannot sit here and look to a straight at me with a straight face and say that there was no manipulation going on, that there was no manipulation in the mass media going on, that that it was talking points regurgitated over a period of time that became a societal norm and then a meme and then the meme got generated and spread out through a web of lies all over the United States. And then it becomes – now, once you have the meme that is out there, remember the you didn't build that meme, which the Republican Party ran with and said that, oh, look at that. What a communist statement it is. It was not a communist statement. Do I agree with Obama's politics? Absolutely not. Do I believe that central government is the way to go? Absolutely not. But I defended him on my show because what he was trying to say was just the old traditional speeches that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And when I say that, I mean that if I give you a sandwich, I didn't build that sandwich technically. Somebody had to bake the bread. Somebody had to cut the bread. Probably a machine that did both, but follow the bouncing ball of logic here. So I get the bread, not made by me. And then I need some I need some mustard on that too. I want mustard on my sandwich. So I get mustard from I don't know. I don't even want to say a company because then they'll want you know royalties or whatever. So let's say that I just get the Publix brand mustard. See there I went. I already gave a brand whatever. Generic mustard. I didn't build it. I didn't make it. Somebody else made that for me. The meat, the cheese, everything's the same, and then it all comes together. Did I make the sandwich? Theoretically, yes. Technically, no. And that's what he was trying to get at, and then the Republicans went and went bonkers on it. So that's how things get spun. And with the age of information and with the age of the five-second attention span, remember on the last podcast I said that the – I actually heard Alex Jones study, and I thought it was the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life, that the that the new American flag should be Dory from the uh, from the Disney movie, which um, – Finding Nemo. Gosh, I couldn't remember it again. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe I should be Dory. Who knows? But um, – you should just have Dory as a picture because Americans will really forget things that happened 10 minutes ago. And 
it's because you're being absolutely it's it's partially due to the fluoride and it's partially due to the to the education and just the way that your brain is set up to function through 12 years of um, K through 12 plus 4 years of college and even in uh, Chomsky's interview that I played a excerpt of earlier he talks about how you know once you get to college it's it's pretty much you know a free thinking world you know you're here here's your books here's your I'm not going to teach to the test. You just go and learn this stuff by yourself. So we now live in an age where the majority of the stuff that you know, learn, what have you, is more than likely, or what you feel, is more than likely been conditioned into your psyche through no fault of your own. Once again, through no fault of your own. Colors have a way to project feelings, and I know that sounds very cheesy and um, and hippy dippy bullshit, but it's true. So, who did a piece on this? Was this the Washington? Uh, this is the Washington Post did a piece on this, and this is one of the very first things that you learn in marketing, and that is, um, and there's a reason for everything. There's a reason that. Corporations choose certain colors. There's a reason they choose certain fonts. So I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to read this article and read um, some of the undertones of it. And it makes for. And I'll share this on the on the website, guys. So you can go into the show notes for um, podcast number. I believe this is number five, and you'll be able to hyperlink to this so you can read it yourself. And it says, "Sight for your eyes. What do colors mean?" You know that your favorite color looks, you've even thought of how it makes you feel? Colors actually affect your emotions. For example, it is generally accepted that red makes people agitated or even not fully aware of it. Bright colors are very stimulating and mood colors are very soothing, said uh, Jim Morton, a color expert based in Hawaii who has worked with major companies to set up their colors for their products. So, duh. Morton says one of the reasons that affect us is that over a 100... Over thousands of years, people have learned to respond based on colors of nature. Correct. So he says, green, for instance, might make people feel fresh or hopeful of cause of something healthy crops and abundant food. Likewise, red might represent aggression or fear because it's associated with blood or fire. Today, colors are used in marketing to try to get people to react a certain way. For example, Morton chooses colors of a new kind of pain medications for adults. The company wanted to to stress how quickly the medicine works. So Morton made the tablets red, suggesting that they are fast. Gray, suggesting they are sometimes high-tech. This was a controversy two years ago when a football coach in Iowa painted the visitor's locker room pink, if you guys remember that. Pink is supposed to be a calming color, which would make them might make the visiting team a little less aggressive on the field. He probably did that to make them feel like they were females also, but they won't come out and say that. Some people don't believe that these some people don't believe in these reactions, but there are studies that support them. Most show that the Olympics who wore red uniforms in their competitions slightly more often and not wait, won their competitions slightly more often than those who wore other colors. And kids post um reports that the basic theories about psychology of colors and emotions is that they are an emotional reactions they share. So Here is what the colors stand for. So under red, 
red causes the heart to beat faster, which has been clinically proven. We actually talked about some crazy psycho stuff about how um, beats per minute and those types of things are used to actually manipulate you when you're listening to music. So there's a lot of manipulation going on, and if you're just you know if you're just that first level thinker and you're just kind of cruising through life, you're just being you're being imagine a computer with like 15 windows open and then getting spammed on every window. That is what. But the spam box pops up and then closes out so fast that you can't even see it, so you don't even really care about it. But needless to say, the spam box is telling you to click this link, click this link, click this link, and then you go and do it. So it says, red causes the heart to beat faster and how it makes you feel. Agitated and jumpy, rushed, hungry, fearful, strong, and passionate. Um, it's, it's cues in nature, uh, red meat, blood, fire, and berries. How red is used? To show energy, strength, and speed. Examples, rest, race, red cars, fire engine, and it's also one of the most visible things in the spectrum, by the way. I don't think they mentioned that. But it's often used on the walls of fast food restaurants because it makes you hungry, and it also makes you eat more quickly. That is correct also. Gee, I wonder why McDonald's is red and then yellow. Here, let's jump to yellow. Yellow, the most visible color of the spectrum, and your eyes notice it first. Remember on the last podcast or the podcast before, I talked about how if you go into a convenience store, not only are the little stickers that show everything on sale going to be either yellow or red because they're the first two colors that are noticed in the spectrum, but nine times out of ten, the candy bars are going to be in a yellow wrapper because yellow is the brightest color in the spectrum and is the one your eyes gravitate to first. I bet you never look at the ceiling tiles when you go in a convenience store, but that's the first thing I look at to find out how clean it is. Next time you go in a convenience store, think about the last time you actually looked at the ceiling. It'll actually shock you. The <coughs> and it says, okay, so back to yellow. It is the most visible color in the spectrum, and the eyes notice it first. Once again, why all candy bars, the majority of them at least, or the top sellers, except for Snickers, which is in brown, but whatever. How it makes you feel. Cheerful, hopeful, excited, and focused. Once again, gee, I wonder why they want you to be in yellow wrappers so that you can just focus on it. Cues in nature. The sun, fruits, vegetables, flowers, and autumn leaves. How yellow is used. To get attention on emergency vehicles, road signs, taxis. Keeps you alert and concentrating. It is a popular color for writing paper. It can be overwhelming to the eye if used, and it is used little in fashion. Because it's a little bit abrasive. Like people don't like. I mean, you got to be a really. Anyway, you got to be a really good-looking person to pull off some yellow, because it's just such an outlandish color. So let's move on to blue now. Blue recedes or um, recedes, so objects appear further away. This will be fun. I'm gonna tell you guys all about the blue colors. How it will make you feel? Content, clean, tranquil, spiritual, trusting. Trusting hmm. and depressed. It's really weird. It goes trusting and then depressed. Cues in nature. Few nature references. Oh, okay. The main ones, sky, ocean, land, berries, and fish. Also mold and um, also mold and, and I think there's a typo here. Bruises. Uh, what blue is used, um, how blue is used. It is most commonly used to paint and color bedrooms, also police uniforms. Not anymore. we got black ones for those. Um, blue suits uh, suggest loyalty. That is also the most common color 
the suit in the corporate accepted corporate world is a blue tie with a or excuse me a blue suit a navy blue suit with a red tie. That's just um, one of the things that um, here are some other colors. Pink is happy, fun, comforting, sweet, childlike, and feminine. Yeah, duh. And gee, let's see what the black uniforms symbolize: powerful, strong, magical, and ominous. Yeah, that's pretty much why they want them to be in that. So. Um, there's a couple of other ones. Orange, stimulating, energizing, warm, and tasty. Orange is another one that you like to use for um, for any kind of point of purchase marketing because it draws your eye really, really well and it and it makes you pay attention. So those are just some of the colors that um, and some of their applications. Now I said I was going to get into blue. Now blue is an interesting one. Most people look at blue and they say that, oh, that will that symbolizes like it says, it's it's clean, it's tranquil, it's content. Did you know that one of the reasons that Coke outsells Pepsi by such a wide margin is not due to the fact that it tastes a lot different, because it really doesn't. It is a little depending on where it's brewed or where it's made, it might have a little bit more or a little bit less carbonation. But the overall formula is very similar. But it's because of the red of the box. And so blue, Pepsi Blue lost out. And so that's why you keep seeing them change the variants of blue. So they'll have like a darker blue and then like a really dark blue. And now with the new Pepsi, I can't remember if it's like the Pepsi Next or whatever it's called. It's a very, very light blue. It almost looks like a... It almost looks like a um, uh, what's the best word for it? It almost looks like a uh, like a fresca. So they're trying to be very, once again, very clean and tranquil and light. You know, displaying how light it is and how it could be it could be almost as healthy for you as water, and that's what your subconscious will think because it'll see blue and it'll think subconsciously that this might be very tranquil and it'll be like drinking water. So let's get into the grocery store analogy. There are billions of dollars spent, and I know this is going to come to just basic for most of you, but this is just basic marketing, and I just want you to be aware of what's going on um, throughout your day-to-day activity so that you can become aware of the manipulation. And then you can do what I do. You can accept the manipulation if you want, but at least know that you're being manipulated. Or you can try to fight it, which is kind of fun too because then you really start asking yourself, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Why am I buying this? I don't know. Hmm. So when you go into the grocery store, they have what are called – we'll start as we enter the grocery store – most of the times, you're going to enter the grocery store into an area that is going to be right near the produce area because they don't want you to walk into an area that is going to be just boxes and boxes and boxes. That's why the freezer aisle is always away from the door because most people are going to go there towards the end because it's going to be the last thing they want. And they want you to take the path of walking through the door and going up and down the aisle, up and down the aisle. Okay? So you very first start out 
there will always be – oh, before you even go in there, what do you have? Oh, you have the manipulation slash sales section, which is typically products that the store has deemed that they're trying to remove or they have an excess of. And I have a best friend that has been in the grocery business who now runs a very successful um, very successful grocery store. He's been in the business since he was 16. I was in the business for a little while. But I've talked to him about all this stuff when I got out of college, and he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we learn about that all the time. We, and and so I'm going to let some of the secrets out of the bag here, but all you got to do is take a night marketing class, and you'll know all this stuff. So you walk in, and you get the specials. And the specials are, once again, products that they're trying to push that are either a very, very high market value for the grocery store selling it, which means that they make a bigger profit on it. Or they're just getting in them at a discount from the distributor, and they're going to keep the same markup rate, maybe even a little bit more, and then pass the quote-unquote savings onto you, which there's never any real savings. It's all manipulation. So now you walk through the grocery store. You walk through the the vegetable aisle, and then you get to your – oh, depending on how it's set up, but most of them are set up very similar – you're going to get to your meat section. You go through the meat section, and then you start working your way down the cereal aisle, coffee aisle, so on and so forth. But meanwhile, in the background, you may not notice it, but it is true that you have music playing in your grocery store. Now, if you haven't noticed, the music is not going to be like the music in a club, much like what we said in the last podcast. Music is definitely there to manipulate you. In the grocery store, you will always wonder why they pay very kind of slow, yet not so slow, but poppy, depressing music. And the reason is that if they set the tempo around 80 beats per minute, which is a little bit less than you know the average tap of your foot, that your body subconsciously will start to walk at that pace. Which, what does that do? Well, that gives the grocery store, gives you more time in the store, more time to buy things, more time to browse things. But also, it gives the people that are paying for that advertising space, the distributors, the actual inventors of the products, it gives them time for you to get in front of their said products. And it gives you more time in front of their said products. So everybody wins except for you, the person being manipulated. And I say this in a fun way. I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist because, you know, at the end of the day, you you know, you really just... Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. You just really don't want to tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. So... Once again, this is just fun trying to get you guys to understand where I'm coming from and, and, and you know, just giving you a little bit of knowledge. Oh, how evil of me. So moving on. Now that you understand why the grocery store is set up a certain way and why the music is playing a certain way, let's move on to what actually happens as you go down the aisle. Now, most of you know this through probably deliberating it on your own, but if you look on the grocery store, there is going to be roughly one, two, three, four, I'm just kind of going from memory, maybe five shelves, okay? The very, and this is called product, um, this is called shelf space, or um, you basically buy your, um, it's not product positioning, but 
it's not product placement. I guess it's product positioning. I can't remember the technical term for it. But basically, you have to pay for those spots on those specific um, on those specific shelves. You pay for it. You pay via inches if you're trying to sell your product in a said store. So if you haven't noticed, but you will now, walk down an aisle and look at the very, very bottom row. The very bottom row will always consist of your knockoff brands, your cheaper ones, your cheaper versions. The easiest aisle to spot this is on the cereal aisle. That is where you will find all the knockoff cereals, all the cereals that nobody wants. Especially if you're a kid, you will definitely never want any of those cereals because they're not in fun little bags or fun little packages. They're just in the run-of-the-mill. Um, they're usually, like I said, the knockoff brands. So on the next three shelves, you have your your big hitters. Those will always be your name brand marketing, marketable players. If you're walking down the cereal aisle, that's going to be your General Mills, your Kellogg's, those types of people. And then at the very top, at the very top of your the very top of your shelf space, you will have the typically higher dollar, higher value, higher desired products. Once again, going down the grocery store, going through the cereal aisle, you will see the granola, the um, the non-GMO cereals. The all-natural, quote-unquote, all-natural cereals, those types of things. The higher dollar amount, the people that are actually concerned with not really getting what's trendy, but getting what's going to be better for them or it's going to be of higher quality. So that is step number two on how they get you. Number one, they get you with the the music being playing and the way the stores are set up is typically a gauntlet if you want – uh, a couple of different things, like if you want bread, you got to go to aisle number two. But if you want bread with peanut butter and jelly, you're going to have to go, you know, aisle number two, aisle number seven. You know, those types of things are never going to keep stuff together for you because, once again, they're trying to maximize the time you spend in the store. Why are they trying to maximize the time you spend in the store, Jake? Because at the very end of your destination or your journey, excuse me. You get to go through the mecca of marketing, the coup de gras of marketing, and that is the point of purchase marketing. Point of purchase marketing is exactly what it stands for and is exactly what it sounds like. It is marketing at your point of purchasing items. Why are those so important? Well, because imagine if you went to – I bet this has never happened to you, but imagine that you go to a grocery store, and as you're checking out, standing behind two or three people, all with about ten items apiece, so you're not going to be there very long, but everyone does this. You start looking around, and typically humans won't turn around and look around back in the store and people watch because that's just kind of rude. So you stay in your peripheral vision, and you look at what's around you. You look at the magazines, you look at the gum, you look at the lighters, you look at what have you. And marketers know how long that you're going to spend in those lines. 
They actually pay millions of dollars to find out through market research how long that you will actually spend in the line at a checkout. That's why when you go to the self-checkout kiosk, you will never see any point of purchase marketing because they, it is a big waste of time for them, and it, it is extremely, extremely expensive for the point of purchase marketing. And I forgot to leave out one other um, marketing uh, portion. I'll make a note of that and be sure to bring that up before I close out the marketing portion of things. So they pay millions and millions of dollars for you to be manipulated right before the checkout. Why? Because 99.9% of those purchases you would have never made unless you would have had to stop to check out. Now, why do I say that? Because they know that you're looking around and they're going to do everything that they can to make that item, their item, catch your attention portray a feeling to you. Let's take um let's take Kit Kat for an example. I'm a big fan of the Kit Kat. I don't typically go into the store wanting a Kit Kat. But if I walk in and I'm standing in line and I'm behind about five other people and one lady's, you know, fumbling around paying with a check or something like that, I'm gonna look around and I'm gonna see this red wrapper. And then the red wrapper, as we discussed earlier, is going to make me feel rushed, and it's also going to make me feel a little bit hungry too. So I'm going to look at that Kit Kat, and simultaneously in my subconscious, every marketing ploy that has ever come out through a Kit Kat commercial, advertisement, what have you, is going through your subconscious, and you're doing yes or no variables whether you want to buy this thing or not. And nine times out of ten, unless you know that you're going to not buy it, You'll end up getting it, not knowing why you got it. You know, and I'm sure I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna tailor this to the to the females in my audience because I'm pretty in touch with um with my wife. We talk about a lot of things, and every time that she gets a um a magazine, almost every time she gets a magazine, I said, "Did you really want that magazine?" No, but I saw an article that I just wanted to read, and I and I couldn't find it, so I just had to get it. And that's all they want. You lost that day to the marketing geniuses of the world. But don't feel bad. We lose every day. We lose every day to those people. Because the marketing geniuses, the spin doctors of the world, those are the ones that control the narrative and control collectively, currently at least, the psyche of the American public. And that's going to do it for the marketing portion of things. But now we have to get into what we're really going to do about this. Because the psyche of the American public now, as I read to you before, television, you're spending 34 hours on average now. Because I don't spend 34 hours, so somebody's got to make up for my 34 hours. So somebody's spending a hell of a lot of time in front of a television. So I've got an article here about why this is kind of not such a good thing. And it goes into um, how television is are, is lowering brain waves. And I'll um and I'll go through just the real brain wave side of things and then talk about the test at the very end. And it says 
and this is just a chart, so kind of follow the bouncing ball of logic here. It's um, brain waves as a comparison of the ex of of the samples. So basically, they did a big study and they took sample sizes and then studied these people's brain waves using a EEG to try to find out what stimulates you. So what their findings were was that the um, the alpha brain weight, if you and this is all going to be drawing first. Uh, reading second is going to be the second set of numbers, and then the last set is going to be um, watching television. And get ready for the the differences. So in your alpha brain state, in your alpha brain wave state, drawing, if you were drawing things on a piece of paper, would be about 1.53. If you were reading something, it would be 2.16. And if you're watching TV, it would be about 1.43. And that's not really a dramatic difference. And that brainwave type is usually associated with um, relaxation. And then you have the low beta, which drawing was 1.43, reading is 1.3, and then television is 1.24. And is the norm and the low beta is the normal waking subconscious, or the normal waking conscious, excuse me. So that's your conscious mind. So obviously your conscious mind isn't going to deviate that much because you're going to be somewhat paying attention. But here is where it gets really interesting. Beta waves. When you're drawing, your beta waves are 2.67. If you're reading because you're not creating, your beta waves are 0.85 and you're watching television is 0.98. And then high beta is the same thing. It's 4.61, 4.5 for reading, and then television is 2.41. As you can see, everything's lower in television because television is, once again, not interactive. It's just um, you're just processing um, first-layer information. And then the last one is your gamma. Now listen to this. And gamma is associated with perception, consciousness, and higher mental activity. High mental activity, okay? It's your synapses firing all back and forth. So 1.68, or excuse me, 1.8, 1.18 for drawing. So obviously you're using a lot of perception and consciousness when you're trying to draw something. Reading, not so much. Um, two, or 0.23. But here's the kicker. Your gamma waves, brain waves, when watching television, are 0.06. Very, very interesting. So what does this all mean? Gamma brain waves are very important, and this is what the study says. Gamma, gamma waves are, high, are fast, high-frequency, rhythmic brain responses that have been shown to spike with higher cognitive process are engaged. Um, research in adults and animals showed that lower gamma power might hinder the brain's ability to effectively package information into coherent images, thoughts, and memories. Remember, your brain... On gamma rays, gamma waves, excuse me, 0 0.06 as opposed to 
drawing and point two three reading. So roughly a fourth of what your brain should be doing if you are reading. Now here is the here's the kicker. And it's the effect on child brain development. Children ages 8 to 14 spend over four hours per day on average watching TV or videos. Younger children, infants up to age 6, on an average of one hour of TV daily. So assuming one hour per day of children aged 2 to 8 by the age of 14, that works out to a total of 10,950 hours or 1.25 years, 24 hours a day in front of a television. This is creepy. We know that a person uses his or her brain during childhood. It's a huge effect on how their brain develops, and scientists call it neuroplasticity. Uh, neuroplasticity, excuse me. During TV watching, viewers' gamma brain waves almost disappear. This is why I say that you're being programmed if you're watching the television. That's why they call it programming. You're not interacting with that thing one bit. You are just taking in information that is probably not even sitting there. It's just there to entertain you, and that is it. For adults, it doesn't matter how much, since their brains are nearly as plastic as aren't nearly as plastic as a child's. You know, plastic was in quotes. So, what are the effects of on child development brains of hours and hours of suppressed brain activity? The explanation number one is early comparisons of EEGs while watching television and EEGs while reading were based on popular, well-academic brief that TV viewing is passive. Based on William James' conceptual of dual attention systems, voluntary and involuntary, Krugman of 1971 poised that there is reading involves a series of successive efforts to attend and demand voluntary attention. So you, your actual brain has to pay attention throughout this. TV viewing involves little or no voluntary effort. Once again, you are just there and it is just bombarding you with visuals accompanied with sound, which your brain finds entertaining. Using the EEG measurement of of the occipital area, and that's the area which you know receives all the um, all the visual information. Krugman found that the proponent of slower brain waves, alpha, delta, and and theta frequencies, whereas the corresponding characteristic respond to the e respond for the EEG during the reading the reading involved little slow act, wave, wave activity, considerable high frequency or beta activity. He interrupted these findings. He interpreted these findings as support the idea that the two medias are processed differently, consistent with James's idea of the two at, uh, attentional systems. So it also appears, as suggested initially by the earlier studies of the involvement or eye movement, studies of involvement or eye movement, that res the response to print generally may come to be understood as active and composed primarily of fast brain waves, whereas the response to television might be understood as passive and composed to primarily the slow brain waves. Further testing, further testing indicated from brain waves of media involvement, reprinted book uh, also by Krugman as well. So... I'm going to go to the skip to the very end here because this is all basically these um, thesis expanding upon one another and not. 
And it says, um, in 1986, um, Byron Reeves of Stanford University, um, uh, Esther Thorson of the University of Missouri, and their colleagues began to study whether a simple formal features of television, cuts, edits, zooms, pans, sudden noises, activate the orientating response. Orienting, orienting. Gosh, I just added a bunch of letters there. Thereby keeping the attention on the screen. By watching how brain waves were affected by normal features, the researchers concluded that the stylistic tricks can indeed trigger involuntary responses and derive atten- uh, their attentional value through the evolutionary significance of detecting movement. It is in this form, not the content of television, that is unique. So basically, it is telling you that the way that television gets you to pay attention to it is via flicker rates. And for those of you that don't know what flicker rates are, the next time you're watching television, turn around and look at the wall and watch how many times you will see flashes of just colors. Now, you don't see those when you're sitting there watching the television because, once again, your brain starts to lower yourself into that state and you just get into the actual overall experience of the television. So, what does this all mean? If you're lowering somebody's brain waves, and people are doing this up to 40 hours a week, you're probably not operating on the same level cognitively as somebody that doesn't watch a lot of television that draws a lot or is obviously reading or something of that nature. So it creates a void. But what it also does, it opens the door to mind control. So, let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. Is mind control real? Absolutely it's real. MKUltra was real. Um, The projects that came before them were real. Uh, MK Ultra, guys, for you that don't know, um, just go and you know Google search that. And that'll be a lot of fun for you. But I've got a clip here. It's about five minutes long, and then I'll I'll just recap everything at the very end and, and give my breakdown and, and what we can actually do in order to to kind of right the ship a little bit. So here is this is a um, it's a pretty lengthy clip, but here's the clip on um, on mind control, and it goes into the MK Ultra. And also, um, also look up Operation uh, Operation Mockingbird back in the fifties, where the, um, the CIA or the government wanted to put um, little um, little cameras inside the televisions, and that was back in the fifties. So I promise you that you don't have any that you don't have any cameras in your um, in your television now in your flat screen. Sixty years later, I promise you, you don't have one. Mind sciences, or the study of human behavior in relation to the mind, is the newest of all the arts. It's less than a hundred years old. And it is by far the, the one that is most cloaked in secrecy. The origins of psychological warfare uh, were in Nazi Germany. And in the Nazi ideology, 
they had something that was called Weltanschauung Krieg, which means worldview warfare. The idea for them was imposing the Nazi worldview on the countries that they had occupied. The Americans picked up this idea, created an American version of it, and called that psychological warfare. In trying to understand psychological warfare and in trying to understand the American approach to post-war efforts to control people's minds, both as individuals and on a mass scale, there's a lot of illusions about how that was done. Were Nazis involved in that process? Yes, they were. Tony Paperclip was a United States government-sanctioned CIA operation for the importation of Nazi and fascist scientists into the United States. Their statement was simply this, if we don't bring these people into this country and contain them, then our enemies, the Soviet Union, will get them. The first wave was to bring these scientists. There were 700 odd propulsion scientists. And then there were some 600 and some odd mind scientists people that they brought in. The CIA was given the responsibility of actually placing the individuals that had a project paperclip into the military industrial complex, including our colleges and universities. Mind control was a psychological warfare weapon that Adolf Hitler regarded as the answer for taking over the entire planet. The name for the mind control research in this country was MKUltra. MKUltra was one program of a series of programs that came out of the CIA to experiment with different types of mind control using drugs, using electroshock, using insulin shock, and, and other techniques. I think that the goal for those people who planned the program was very straightforward. It was an attempt to figure out a way to interrogate people and to learn how to protect their own agents against control by others. If you put someone in a position of being disabled by not feeding them or not allowing them to sleep or overwhelming them with sound, if you use massive shock treatment and you give people massive doses of drugs such as PCP or mescaline or amphetamines or LSD, and if you put them in periods of darkness where they can't predict from one minute to another what is going to happen next, so they're always dreading, there's no consistency to sort of what's going to happen, anybody can be put in a position of being open to brainwashing. Ewan Cameron was probably the foremost psychiatrist of his time in the 1950s. He was using high-tech sound techniques. He was using multiple kinds of loop recorders to force people to listen to recorded messages 24 hours a day for weeks on end to basically destroy people's thinking patterns. He injected the lysergic acid into the vein and he patted me on the shoulder and said, now they're lassie. We'll see you later. And I started to feel very frightened. And the fright became a terror. And I sort of began throwing myself from one side of the room to the other. I didn't know what to do to stop this feeling. It felt like my bones were melting. That I was, uh, I just didn't know who I was anymore. This is not just a break-in not just invasions of privacy by illegal wiretapping. This is uh, an invasion of a person's mind. But uh, that is about as uh, profound uh, an injury, uh, except for loss of life, that the government can impose. This was a, a post-Nazi program, if you will. It was a, uh, an Americanization 
I've often made the statement, and I still make it flippantly, the Nazis didn't lose the war. They just had to move. Now it's 50 years later. Now they're much more clever, much more sophisticated. They have a lot more money to spend. His motor coordination was disrupted because of the compound's effect. Although his vision was not impaired, he found it difficult to focus his attention on the next objective. His physical actions were noticeably slower. He felt compelled to disobey his instructions. Did Sergeant Ditches give you any uh, instructions about what you were supposed to do tomorrow? Tomorrow? What, is today Thursday? Today's Thursday. Today's Thursday, uh-huh. Well... Wars are not won on the battlefield. They're won in the minds of the people. Yeah, so... <clears> There's <throat> a pretty good breakdown, and at the very end, where you're asking, where you hear that guy talking in the background, that is actually... I, I've seen most of those videos from the um, from the MK Ultra experience, at least, at least the um, ones that were released, where they were that, and I've seen the ones where they do... Um, they give people... Um, Psychotropics, not psychotropics, but um, hallucinogens, in order to try to in- induce a, a mind control state, and that's what that guy was doing because he had just gotten an order from from the um, from the authority figure, and he was like, "Hey, you, tomorrow you're going to do this," and the guy's like, "Okay, all right, I'm going to do that tomorrow," and so the guy's like, "Hey, so what are your, you know, what did Doctor So and So tell you to do tomorrow?" And he's like, "Um." Cannot remember. So, the big takeaway, everyone, is that in order for our society to progress, we cannot be a group of bystanders. And currently, we have a large majority of our group, of our collective, if you will, Gosh, the socialists will go crazy if they heard me say that. The collective, us, the human species, living here in America, living on this continent with lines drawn on it by human beings, we need to have a somewhat of a break with the television. And what I mean by that is that it is okay to go and insert yourself into the matrix. I'm not going to fault anybody for that. Everybody has their outlet. Um, my friend Robert that was on here on the show said that his outlet is um, Dancing with the Stars. Um, one of the other guys, Matthew, that hosts the show with him, says that his outlet is sports. And I have um, an outlet of video games and music. Those are my two outlets. I play music or I play video games. But just be aware of how long you're spending in front of the screen. Because what we're having now is we're having a whole society of people that don't participate. And if you have a whole society of people that don't participate that aren't informed, you run into societal norms that frankly are very scary. I find this all the time when I'm out in public. And you have to try to strike up a conversation with somebody. And if you mention something that's outside of the the 
realm of common speak or what we're quote-unquote told that we're supposed to talk about. See, you're conditioned here in America that there are three things that you can talk about. You can talk about sports, um, popular culture, or you can talk about the weather. Those are about the three topics, especially if you're a male, you only get like the sports. And if you if you try to, you know, talk about politics, then you'll run into people that are – and I hate to say this, but you'll run into people that have been conditioned by the magic box to either have a liberal or a conservative perspective. It's not that necessarily they agree with that perspective. It's not that they've read works of the the real liberals, the Thomas Jeffersons, the people like that, the true liberals. Um, they get their information from the magic box and then file that away. And once again, since we're so conditioned through the public school system and everything else, that if you can just regurgitate at first-level thinking – Nobody's ever going to really challenge that person, but that's where I come in. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge the societal norms. Why? Because if we don't challenge the norms, you end up in 1984. You end up in the box. You end up in this, in this compacted, controlled environment by other humans that see you as a a threat if you can have free thought or go out and do something on your own. So what I am saying to you is to educate yourself and find things that you find interesting. And here is my challenge to you for this podcast, whenever you listen to it. If you listen to it a year from now, the, the challenge is going to remain the same. I want you to go research any of the things that I talked to you about today, whether it's fluoride in the water, whether it's Operation Mockingbird, whether it's MK Ultra, whether it's gamma rays, gamma waves being brainwaves being lowered by watching television and talk about the negative effects that that can have on our society. Imagine a society like idiocracy, and that's where we're headed. Where people just want to be entertained and they don't want to really interact with people. If you want to be like that, then that's fine. But don't bring the rest of us down with you. Because right now, as a collective, that is the that is the American flag should be Dory in front of a television. That should be the new American flag. And I think that we're a greater species than that. And more importantly, I, I think that my audience and anybody that listens to this show is a better person than that. So strike up a conversation with that peer, person in the um, with the person in the line at the grocery store that you learned all about about how you're being manipulated in there. Strike up a conversation about that. Strike up a conversation about anything outside of the social norm, and let's get a buzz going. Let's get a buzz going about about just thinking outside of the box. And hey. You know, did you know that we just armed Al-Qaeda rebels over in over in Syria? Yeah, well, we got to go get Assad. Well, yeah, but wasn't Al-Qaeda the people that blew up the, you know, that blew up the World Trade Center on 9/11? You know, weren't they responsible for it? Wasn't Al-Qaeda responsible for all the big war on terror? So just get these people to think, and then once they start thinking, once again, the Norm Chomsky thing will take over and they will themselves go out and search for the information. So that's what I'm saying to you. 
go out, get involved with people. Once again, everybody, get a friend, get informed, get involved, and let's go out there and change the paradigm and expand our minds, and let's go to the stars together. Doesn't that sound like fun? Take care, everyone. In your heart.